from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you, Monzo gets attacked for lending customers money to buy its shares. In the same week, it smashes its crowdfunding round. Well done, guys. Uh, Zopa get a banking license and there's a rat in me ATM. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 277 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS office in... Devonshire Square. Uh, we've moved into our beautiful new home, and I've got to say, the amount of exposed brick we got going on, I'm just digging it. I really am. It, it's a nice new home. He does plants up now. Zoe's been decorating it. it. It's starting to feel like home. My name's Simon Taylor, and of course, I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Ryan Garner. How are you today? How are you today, even? <laughs> very, very good, thank you. Also enjoying the new digs here. It's, it is nice. And you can say the word today. Today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I'm very jealous of you. Um, Alrighty. Um, don't forget, listeners, if you have any questions for us or a new story you catch and you want us to cover, drop us an email, podcasts at 11fs.com or find us on social media. As always, we're not alone. We're joined by three fantastic guests. We have Menno, I'm not going to try and say your last name, um, who's head of business and customer development at Money U. Menno, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. Great to be here. Thank you. Do you want to say your last name so that it's said live on the podcast? Yes, it's Van Leeuwen. And that's why I didn't try and it say it. It means something about lions. So Menno Lions is okay as well. Okay, Menno Lions. Yeah. That just sounds epic. Now I can hear the Lion King theme tune. I'm thinking about Simba. Like everything's going on in my head. In the circle of life. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. It's a wheel of fortune. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We are also joined by Guy Stiebel, yeah, yeah. Uh, who's VP of Products at Scanabate. Hi, howdy. Nice being here. Thank you for joining us. And Paul Stamper, uh, who's Head of Financial Services at Ipsos Mari. Paul, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. Alrighty, let's get on with the news. First story comes from The Times and um, dun-dun-dun, Monzo attacked for lending customers money to buy its shares. Uh, Monzo's been accused of going beyond the pale by allowing customers to get into debt to buy its shares. As discussed on last week's show, Monzo is aiming to raise about $20 million through crowdfunding. Uh, the prospectus shows that it will allow eligible customers to go, quote-unquote, overdrawn by up to £1,000 to buy shares. Companies are banned from making loans to investors to buy their own shares, but the use of overdrafts does not appear to be covered by the rules. Uh, Monzo's approval from the Prudential Regulation Authority for the capital raising as its prospectus has been approved by the UK Listing Authority. Uh, Just before we throw this up into the room, by the way, Monzo hit £20 million worth of crowdfunding in two days, two hours and 45 minutes, making it the largest crowdfund and the fastest crowdfund of that size in history. Um, But, you know, the Times got out there with this one. Uh, Any thoughts on this one, Room? So who's accused Monzo of this? Like, where's this come from? The accuser. That's what I'm trying to figure out. The man. Right? Like, yeah. that, it really does immediately beg that question. Uh, like, so there was a really interesting article um, that followed this in the FT Alphaville. Uh, I don't know if you follow FT Alphaville, but it's like the blog version of the FT. And FT Alphaville noticed that uh, actually there was a social media backlash against this story from Monzo's own customers. And FT Alphaville took that social media backlash as, oh, well, what what companies are doing now is they're getting people to follow them on social media so that if there's any bad news, those social media people will shout you down. And I'm like, 
what? I mean, that's what yeah. you call brand advocates, right? When you've got yes. customers doing that. Um, and also, the story just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't know if you've seen um, Monzo's overdraft, but it's pretty expensive. Like It's 50p a day or £15.50 a month because uh, I signed up to get an overdraft off Monzo the other week. I'm like, why would I do go into a, an overdraft of £1,000 with those charges for to invest in Monzo who have, as far as I can see, no exit plan to get that money back out again any time soon. So it seems a little bit of a weird one to me. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's uh, it's an example of how media also looks very closely to banks, normally to incumbent banks, but uh, now this article uh, really is also on a, on a challenger bank who is really, yeah, the whole story, uh, we, we, we like Munzo very much, uh, all the things they did, and um, funding is not the problem, right? The, there is n- there's no uh, no problem to get funding and they really did this to get more and more commitment uh, of, uh, with the customers in um yeah and then this is the kind of news uh, news you get um as you are a bank right? do you think it's um the media just trying to dig up a bit of dirt on probably the nicest business in financial services and normally they don't they don't do this that's exactly where i'm coming at it from it feels like the way we treat celebrities like we love them until they're successful and then we start to have a go at them because we don't like that they're successful. It's really English. It's not uniquely English. It is the whenever you see, let's say, a negative approach towards something. My first question is, Qui Bono, who's getting anything out of this? Mm-hmm. And it's very Trumpian, the not fair. Wait a second. They can do that with overdraft, and they're letting them buy shares, and they're not going to institutional investors, and they're not doing it the traditional way. How dare they not raise money from institutional yeah. investors? And oh, they figured reason. another way to do it. <laughs> oh, those bastards! That's probably illegal, and that's the non-fair approach. Wherein it's not illegal. It is, as far as the law describes it, it's fine. And they, those investors could have overdraft somewhere else. They can overdraw. Well, that's the key point, right? So there was actually a commenter on this article that said they have a £2,000 overdraft with one of the other UK high street banks, and they could literally transfer that money to Monzo and buy its shares. It can happen with any bank. Monzo does a thing that's legal. Monzo does a thing that everybody else does and warns you that it might be bad for your health if you do it, and also in the process made it really slick and easy for anybody to share the proceeds of growth in a company that has what looks like real potential. Uh, to, To that point... Who benefits from trying to tear this down? And Monzo have just passed a million customers. Who's scared of Monzo passing a million customers and having crowdfunding and having advocates? Uh, I, I really do think this is uh, this is saber rattling from the big banks, and uh, it, it's thinly veiled. And I think everybody saw it coming, and they're quite surprised by the backlash, and they're looking for a way to spin it. Like they have to try and make them seem, oh, they're just as bad as everybody else. But actually, um, the response, um, the Monzo rebuttal, uh, is, is quite interesting. They said, we disagree with the premise of the article. We don't encourage our customers to borrow money from Monzo or anybody else to buy shares. The article seems to stem from the fact that we offer overdrafts to our customers uh, and aren't withdrawing that facility whilst fundraising is live. We aren't encouraging anyone to use the overdraft to invest in Monzo as part of this crowdfunding round, but we also don't believe it's our place to judge or restrict how people spend the money within the limits of the law. I mean, that seems pretty fair. And I think the tone of that as well also kind of plays to why people are advocates of this brand. You know, they're not being judgmental, they're not dictating, but they're also giving some sound advice. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very, very transparent with their fees on their overdrafts as well, which will probably deter people from doing this thing. So 
It seems... If I make my overdraft quite expensive, but I'm really transparent about it, the fact that it's quite expensive and I offer you it anyway, but I do so in plain language that you can understand, mm. like there's something that about that that kind of people trust. And I think there's some, there's some jealousy out there. And I would prefer to see people learning from it. And I think we have, right? You've seen Lloyd's Banking Group start to implement some of the features they've added uh, of many challenger banks, not just Monzo's, where they've got a map of the location. Barclays now has merchant uh, uh, logos and they have the ability to freeze your card. That's a good response. That's learning from in, in a positive way. But I think also if you add like a loans product, we just launched the payments and savings uh, app. And we looked into uh, adding maybe loans and we did some testing. And then at that time, you also see, okay, uh, you can be very focused on the uh, on the interest of the customer if you have payments and savings. But if you add loans to it, uh, you, you really become vulnerable that you have the good interest of the customer still at heart. Yeah. So you really have to design your, your loans product and the nudges you give, the easiness of use um, in that product. Brilliant. And... The ultimate arbiter in all this is the consumer, right? I mean, it, they're the ones who will judge. And you were saying they've just hit, I think they were saying they'd hit 1.2 million customers. That's 1% share. They're getting 6% share of new account openings and have been for the last three or four months. They're, they're clearly doing something right that the consumer likes, even if some of the others are more uncomfortable with it. Indeed. Listen, I've got to move us on because there's a lot of stories this week. Um, next one comes from The Economist. Um, apparently, financial firms have quietly prepared for Brexit, which is a stunningly sensible title. Um, but basically, it says that as things stand regarding Brexit, banks and others will need bases in the EU27. Uh, the head of the supervisory arm for the European Central Bank said recently that 37 firms, including 25 banks, had secured new or improved licenses. And the ECB is insisting the bank setup were more than empty shells and wants to avoid being overly reliant on back-to-back -back hedging strategies. Uh, 30 institutions are pitching camp in Frankfurt and the banks will shift uh, around 750 billion to 800 billion uh, euros of assets. And others are consolidating Paris, Dublin, Luxembourg and Amsterdam. Brexitus or just sensible moves? I bet they're pleased they've done it after this week, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a week. Yeah. Um, Context. <laughs> Where do I start? Um, I mean, I, I remember reading a report about this um, kind of only a few months ago. I mean, the political world's moving so quickly at the minute. Everything's changing so quickly. And this was saying, um, it was on Reuters, saying that, um, that London would lose 5,000 jobs um, after Brexit. And that was with an orderly Brexit. And it doesn't seem like we're going to get an orderly Brexit um, as of this week. So um, it it doesn't look good, really. My issue is the quietly. It wasn't that quiet. It's They weren't running like headless chickens, but it, they were been... Re you, if you work anywhere outside the UK right now in financial industry, they're recruiting like mad. They're, they ran out of people that speak English in Luxembourg. <laughs> they're recruiting and they're doing it so it's quietly if you're not like inside baseball if you're not inside financial industry you're not aware to the fact that all the banks are reshifting themselves and arranging them their, their operations in a way that works better post-Brexit so it's not quiet I think it's actually very loud if you're in the industry you're looking it's opportunities for a lot of it also seems to be a good opportunity for a lot of challengers to use that time to scrap something out of that restructuring and movements uh, but yeah, it's what they're supposed to do, I think, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that 
you're looking against the background of that and we're all talking about what's leaving an N26 have just launched in the UK. So clearly it's not one-way traffic. Yeah, so I could uh, could be a promoter of Amsterdam as the new fintech hub, of course, <laughs> uh, the financial hub. Um, but actually, I've been saying this already for many years. It's about connecting those financial uh, hubs. And Frankfurt, Amsterdam, obviously, are also uh, great spots. And I see now also in talks with uh, with my, uh, my uh, British friends, there is just a certain need to really bridge together, whether there's a Brexit or not, or what, what the uh, stipulations are. So it's about bridging, really seeing what kind of collaboration uh, can we set up. And we don't have to take over companies now. We can just uh, get into a smart partnership. Here's hoping sense does prevail. Alrighty, our next story comes from Experian, and apparently rental payments will now show up on your Experian credit report. Um, Experian credit reports include that information for more than 1.2 million tenants from across the UK, and adding that data to credit reports means 45% more tenants will be able to improve their identity, prove their identity online, and are more likely to have access to in- increased access to financial products. Uh, reporting is either automatic through the landlord or the managing agent um, or through fintechs like Credit Ladder and Canopy. Um, th- th- there's some fintechs that have offered this for a while, um, but we've not really seen the financial institutions really adopt this and use this in their models. So it's great that the data is out there, but it's great to see financial inclusion expanding. But the, what really matters is, does that actually help me get the product? Because I can have access to the data, but is it helping me? And, and I guess Experian are kind of in that place because they provide a lot of the scores for a lot of the banks in order to give people products. As, as the RegTech guy that actually brokers that data for a lot of the banks, it's the reason it's interesting because Experian is doing it now is because they work with massive contracts. So the banks buy from whoever they're buying all the time. So if they're buying from Thomson Reuters, if it's not in the bucket of stuff that Thomson Reuters is offering them, they won't be using it even if it comes from a fintech or from a third party. But the interesting is the byproduct, because uh, earlier before the podcast, we talked about the difficulty of proof of address in the UK. If you have rental records, it means that you can bypass one of the biggest hurdles for account opening here, which is how to prove where you live. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the data things that you're seeing is actually the unintended purposes that come out of that data moving into something like Experian, which is a trusted source. It's considered primary. Yeah. So a bank now can say, all right, I don't need your BT bill in order to know that you live somewhere because I have information from your landlord. Well, and your BT bill required you to live somewhere and be able to prove that you were going to live somewhere. You're in this horrible situation before you can prove address, especially if you're a migrant worker or especially if uh, you're a young person who's moving into your uh, first flat, uh, then you know, and leaving the parents, leaving the nest for the first time. What, bi- what contract do I get first? in order to prove that I have a legal address. (laughs) And then how do I ever get on that? It's really painful. Uh, And so Experian adding this is great. Uh, Will people take it into account? And and will people start using RegTech data better? I think that's a really interesting conversation because all of this data is sitting there, but knowing that it's there and knowing how to use it for the benefit of the rest of your business is a completely different thing. It's, I think that the RegTech data issue is, the way we're experiencing it, is trying to get banks out of their comfort zone and saying, all right, we know you have a massive contract with this data vendor. It's okay, you can use them for 60% of things, but there's that 40% that maybe a regional vendor can cover better, or they are better in identifying uh, labor migrants or other mm-hmm. people that the traditional data market cannot support. And the classic model we always use to explain it is um, e-commerce businesses. Uh, uh, corporate banking doesn't know how to calculate the risk. 
they don't have inventory, they don't exist anywhere. But if you go and talk to other vendors like MX and other data providers that are not intentionally providing that kind of data, we can start validating risk for those kind of companies. And that's key. When people talk about other sources of data, they always talk about the social networks. But that's not the point, is it? It's it's other sources of data from other actors in the market, in financial services, who are trying to figure out how they sell their own data and, and be valuable. And it might be even data you already have. Like, And it takes a little bit of creativity. There's a lot of doing something the same way we used to do it because we've just not had the thinking time to do it differently. And I think uh, there's a lot of people inside big banks that want to shake that tree. But I think it's helping them and arming them with the arguments. And I think experience doing it gives it credibility inside a bank, inside a big bank, to be able to do something different or inside an insurer. Like if I'm inside an insurer, experience data is absolutely as important when I'm, I'm trying to prove somebody's address at this point. I think when I read this story, I thought this is brilliant for renters. Not only is it Experian, who's got very widespread coverage across the UK, doing this, meaning uh, consumers, the increasing amount of people that are renting across across the UK get to improve their credit scores just by paying their rent is a great thing. It also reminded me of the um, the interview we did with uh, John Bryant Hope. Uh, John Hope Bryant. Hope, Hope Bryant, sorry, mm-hmm. um, earlier in the year. And um, he was talking about in the US the strong correlation between people's credit score and societal things like crime rates and educational rates and things. And if you can increase people's credit score, they have increasing access to um, financial services um, and they can participate more in society and better manage their financial lives. And so I think there's more um, positive outcomes off the back of this um, change than just, you know, the kind of regulatory stuff that we talked about. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this article is on, but it made me think of the of the blog I just read this week about uh, mortgages in Australia, where uh, people were complaining uh, consumers that they uh, they had uh, they had a hard time to get the mortgage because their transaction data was being an- analyzed and they looked at their spending behavior, for instance, uh, uh, ordering uh, Uber Eats or uh, Netflix or uh, e-commerce shopping uh, after say after uh, after pay services and this is exactly what's what's happening now is that there's getting more data of the customer available when you have to make a decision uh, on a financial product and um, most of the times it's in the interest of the consumer but i think it's very important that uh, you also take the responsibility to coach your customers on this. Uh, it's a double-edged sword yeah. because uh, more data about a customer could mean i could charge them more because i know they're willing to pay more like the Uber surge pricing example, like they will charge you in surge what they think you're willing to pay. That's not in your interests. That's them exploiting you using data. And I think that's what we've got to look out for across insurance and finance and, and across all of those products. Um, but but I really, as so I was speaking to somebody earlier today from a cap markets context who was saying, because of MIFID 2, banks now have all of this additional data that they didn't know, they, they had before in most cases, but they just didn't know existed and hadn't collected. They're sending it to the regulator, but there's all sorts they could be doing with it. And I think this is another example of that. But it's just for a final point, I think we have a lot. So this is the risky part. There, there will be abuse. This data will be abused. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of ex-Google, ex-Facebook, ex-online social marketing that are very good in finding those triggers in that data and analyzing risk and finding the more sensitive groups for that. And that that's where the safeguards are supposed to be there. I think that's probably the first good case for something like GDPR. 
mm-hmm. looking at that data, saying, how do I authorize explicit consent for this specific use and not mm-hmm. for any purpose whatsoever? And I think there's a, an interesting point here, which is that consumers quite like the idea, I think, that if I'm pay, if I'm paying rent, that that somehow helps me getting a mortgage. There's that, that sense of offsetting and, and, and playing that would be, would be an interesting one. And I think there's just another angle here which we just need to bear in mind, which is if you talk to some of the debt advice agencies, what we've been seeing over the last 10 years is mortgage arrears problems going down, rent arrears problems going up. So there is an upside, but there's also a potential downside for some consumers in terms of credit scoring. This may actually have a negative impact rather than a positive impact. Interesting. Um, there's a lot of, you were mentioned nudges a moment ago, Ryan. There's a lot of um, sort of uh, behavioral design techniques that can come on the back of uh having this data uh, and behavioral design is like uh, all superpowers you know with great power comes great responsibility yeah and if you're going to employ these behavioral techniques you need to make sure you're using them in the right way and uh, and part of that comes with being completely open and transparent with the customer that these behavioral nudges are uh, happening and actually whilst that might seem counterintuitive because you know if you're nudging me to do something good for myself, then that is is only going to be effective if I don't know about it. That's actually it's the opposite way. If I'm bought into that nudge or that behavioral technique and I'm aware of it, I'm more likely to stick with it and be conscious that that's a good thing for me. Yeah. But it's about making sure that the nudge is a positive one something really interesting about over the last uh, sort of five years and especially in the last year we've really seen a pushback against this uh, addictive level of design that you see in uh, mainstream you know big tech apps and you start to see now the recognition of that from big tech where you've got you know screen monitoring and uh, time limiting and all of that sort of stuff starting to come in there's a recognition that they got too good at design they got too good at keeping you in their app too good at continuing to scroll to look through uh, adverts. I think this is a really, really big, big trend and also a huge problem for consumers because uh, they, they are being hacked. So all those companies with a commercial uh, commercial purpose, they, they are figuring out what people really want and people uh, can be vulnerable to that. So if they don't really know what is, what's important for them, what goals they want to achieve, um, uh, other companies will, will, uh, will do it for them. And well, with money, so the consequence of financial decisions, there is only the money you have when it's up, when it's gone, it's gone. Sometimes the best design is to get out of the way of the consumer and to not have them come into the app and to have them not be thinking and to ignore it. And we were talking to the CEO of Pension B who says like, I don't mind if somebody never logs in and looks at their pension because they're less likely to do something bad. Like they should be leaving their pension alone for a long time. Yes, if they want to see it, they can. But, you know, I want to reactivate them in terms of contributing to their pension, but I don't want them thinking about it all the time. Exactly. And simplicity is not always the answer, especially in financial services. Actually, a little bit of friction and those speed bumps are really good at helping people um, do the right thing with their own money, especially when they're thinking a bit more irrationally. Interesting stuff. All right. Next story um, comes from the FT. Um not a license to kill, but a license to bank. Um, peer-to-peer lender Zopa have been granted a UK banking license. So they're a 13-year-old peer-to-peer lender. Um, they became the one of the first of its kind to get a full UK banking license. It allows Zopa to increase their offerings with a new fixed-term savings account and a credit card. It's also expected to roll out new money management app. 
And uh, also, according to a recent survey by the FCA, only 40% of UK adults have confidence in the financial services industry. And that description comes after the FCA emphasised the need for greater scrutiny on peer-to-peer lenders, um, saying it was not comfortable with the risk and reward were always balanced appropriately. Um, But they are now a fully licensed bank. Um, They've been around for 13 years. Um, Maybe it's unlucky for them. Maybe it's lucky for them. Um, But they've been pushing for this for some time. I mean, I immediately saw this and thought, they must be looking at this in terms of like this is funding their book, right? If they're doing lending, this is a cheap way to get capital in. I always thought the the thesis of peer-to-peer lending was, well, actually, I don't really have a cost of capital because I'm matching my um, buyers of debt and my sellers of debt. But the reality is they've been buying most of their capital from financial markets, which gets really expensive. So having deposits would make sense. And is that how you read it, Paul? That would certainly make sense. I and mean, it seems the logical argument because it's not something I think that consumers are expecting. It's not one of the brands that's been floating around as a, isn't that a bank yet? Isn't that a bank yet? So you, you get, I don't know, Atom, get, still get consideration, even though you can't actually get the bank account there. Zopa doesn't feature like that. So it's an interesting place they're moving into. And I think they've got a big job of work to do to get people to start thinking them in the consideration set with the Starlings and the Monzo. So their timing is interesting. But they're in an interesting place as well, is they've done something that they've got the consumer level to buy into, which is different to... But but then also, Mark, this is not dissimilar to the Marcus by Goldman play, right? They were looking for a cheap way to fund their balance sheet, and they went out with the savings products with a great rate and attracted a massive amount of consumers to it. This could be the same play. The interesting thing that stood out to me when you were reading that out was that the only 4% of the UK adults have confidence in the financial services industry, but then they're going to get a banking license and become one of those players. I thought the interesting thing about Zopa is that they're peer-to-peer, and actually the trust comes from, I'm going to borrow a bit from Paul, and I know that I will pay Paul back because he's a real human being, not a... a, a, a kind of a bank. That but that's not been the reality of peer-to-peer for quite some time, has it? No, I think they they get also their funds from uh, from financial institutions or investors. So yeah. it's already like a hybrid model. And um, well, I think like you see many fintechs, they grow in a niche. They have a very good customer experience, and then they are looking at to to capitalize on that to branch out. It's and about this could also that. be yeah to to improve uh, scale and margins. It's about getting that beachhead. You see this quite a lot. Revolut with the uh, they start with FX and then they move into everything. Uh, transfer wise, they start with consumer FX, but they really uh, land yeah. now on the small business side. That where you make your money might not be where you start um, building your brand. And I think that's an important lesson for a lot of uh, incumbents. Is that a lot of incumbents tend to go straight for the jugular. They go straight after the profit pool and they look at the the spreadsheet. And they don't look at actually what's going to get me into the market and then how. How can I walk to where the profit is over time? Um, a different opinion might be that it's just a scaling strategy. Mm-hmm. Let's say you don't want to be a bank. But if you're a peer-to-peer lender or any one of those operations, there's a, like a glass ceiling. The how big can you get if you're not a bank? How, how cheap is it for you to buy money? How many guarantees you can get? How many funds you can get? It's like you described, it's too expensive for them. Yep. So maybe just get the banking license so you can start scaling up more aggressively or get better prices because the system is built for banks. Mm. So in some cases, it looks like they're looking for the license because it has fringe benefits. So they might not go full in bank with it, but use it for the other benefits they're getting out of it. And if they have enough cash or the facilities to become a bank, 
like makes more sense. Well, let's find out because we spoke to the Zopa CEO, who's Jaidev Jadana, to get a closer look at what their plans are now they have a full UK banking license. Hi, I'm Jaidev Janardana, CEO at Zopa. Zopa is getting into banking uh, because we want to make people feel good about money. When we talk to our customers and in general UK people in the UK, what we see is that people are dissatisfied with banks. More than half of them don't trust the banks uh, or don't have confidence in them and feel they don't get the right amount of information and insight to make good choices uh, with their money. And the idea of, the, of Zopa Bank is in aid of creating what we think is the best place for money, a place where people feel good about how they manage their money, a place where they can trust the provider they're talking to and a place where they feel they get the right level of information and insight to make good choices as well as great value products that are easy and simple to understand. If you look at Zopa's legacy till now, uh, we've had uh, 13 years of successfully uh, growing a peer-to-peer business. Uh, and that peer-to-peer business, uh, more than 85% of our customers uh, trust us and would recommend us to uh, their friends or family. Uh, and the reason we have built that level of trust is that we've built a business model where we have aligned our interests with our customers. We always act in their interests. And we've delivered them great value products with an easy and intuitive experience on the basis of very good data analytics capability, good risk management, and cutting-edge technology. And we want to kind of take the same ethos into banking, offer more borrowing products, credit cards, for example, auto finance, uh, and, and deposits, where these products will be, just as with the peer-to-peer products, simple and easy to understand, will be delivered on our proprietary technology, which means we can keep pace uh, with our customers' needs uh, and uh, and provide them uh, using our data capabilities insights that help them make better choices with their money. So that's interesting to me that he mentions credit cards and uh, auto loans. Like this uh, does appear to be a way to fund doing a lot more lending in a lot more segments. But he starts out by saying, look, there's a real trust problem in the market. Um, but there's a real clear profit motive here. And that comes back to, to your point, Menno, which is, uh, you know, will people trust it if there's, there's a lot of lending? Not saying that lending's bad intrinsically, um, but uh, it's kind of interesting where they're starting here. Alrighty, uh, next up, we'll have a very quick break and we shall be back shortly. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. So... 
The nominations for the British Bank Awards 2019 have been released. And if you heard me on last week's show, quite excited by this. Um, of course, for the first time, there's an award for Consultancy of the Year. And 11FS have been invited to take part, which is pretty exciting. I'm, I know, I'm excited. Are you excited? Yeah, that's the first time I heard it. Well, you heard it on Fintech Insider. <laughs> Amazing. We break the news, right? And that's what we do. Uh, last year's awards, of course, saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bud, and Wise Alpha receive great accolades. And we want to join them. Uh, like, I don't want to be left out. Do you want to be left out? Absolutely not. I do not want to be left out. So if you love uh, what we do at 11FS, if you love our podcasts, then we'd love to have your vote. Just head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019. That's 2019. What was that, Ryan? B-I-T dot L-Y? It's going to be in the show notes, right? It is. You can read them right there in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> you can scroll to the point and you can read it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just there in case, you, whilst Ryan's doing that. Bit.ly um, forward slash 11FS2019. So if you have your phone on you it. right now and you happen to be commuting, you could you could just type that into your phone. Yeah, yeah. You, you could do that, right? It's just 11FS 2019. Could you do that, Guy? Would you be able to do that on your phone? Yeah, I probably will. Yeah. I, 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 this guy's coming back. <laughs> Alrighty, enough of me like pandering for votes. Uh, let's move on <laughs> to the next story. Uh, all right, this one comes from the uh, Nikkei Asian Review. And uh, the messaging app Line have crossed into banking uh, with a partnership with Mizuho. Um, so they're going to launch their banking services in 2020, uh, aiming to break the sector using a domestic user base of 78 million uh, in Japan, uh, which is pretty significant. Uh, the venture will let users uh, remit small sums by smartphone and offer loans for the purpose. Um, the Line CEO said, if regulations are being used as an excuse, then uh, that's where we can mount a challenge. Of course, uh, the banking sector in Japan, uh, much like the UK, Canada, Australia, uh, relatively concentrated, hasn't seen a massive amount of innovation. Uh, but the JFSA have been pushing for innovation for, for quite some time. So it goes on to say that the new venture will be subject to banking regulations and uh, forced to bear costs uh, Line have never had to as a platform operator. So Line are going to focus on finance because uh, their chat app appeared to be hitting a ceiling, I guess, in their domestic market. There was only so much they could grow. But they've partnered with Tencent to let Chinese tourists in Japan use WeChat Pay. Um, so there's something very interesting um, for for that sort of uh, regional partnership there. So for the uninitiated, this is their sort of uh, almost like the Japanese version of WeChat, right? It's communication service. It's the chat app. It's the WhatsApp of, of Japan. Uh, but it's a, it's a chat app moving into finance in Asia, but a market that looked a lot more like the West. So this one's interesting for that reason, I think. Mm. It, it makes total sense, doesn't it? They've got 78 million users, um, so they've got a huge addressable market to, to offer these these new services to. I think if you look at the um, business model for a messaging app, I don't think it lends itself well to the traditional advertising model. And so then how does it make money? Um, you know, If the first 20 years of the internet was about e-commerce and advertising, <clears throat> then the next 20 years is about the rest, right? So, And what's top of that list? probably fintech so you know i think it kind of makes sense to me that they're going to move into fintech here um also with kind of players in like the us like venmo mm -hmm. um kind of in that space already um india whatsapp and and, and payments is already happening there um, Swear cash, yeah. you know it 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 kind of makes sense to me 
uh, I think the Chinese, the Tencent angle is actually more interesting than anything else in that story because the the Chinese payment behavior with WePay is very specific and it is very uniquely Chinese mm-hmm. as far as using QR codes and that implementation and the way that it's used. And it means that the same way that those techniques and mechanics don't work well if you're not used to them. Like, we are used to contactless. We're using... I come from a country that doesn't use chip and pin. And whenever people try to use chip and pin, I come from Israel and it's all swipe. And you, the minute you put them here, they're all lost. And uh-huh. they, they, remember it's, they don't even remember it's their ATM code. So that logic of moving from either contactless or chip and pin and moving that migration. So if they'll be the one that offers those Chinese uh, uh, tourists that want to pay in, in Japan... And that's a big driving force. There's a lot of them. A, a way that utilizes their existing method, it means that they're going to be a main channel for those users. I don't see them changing much within the Japanese market because the Japanese market is weird. Yeah. And it's very cash-based still. Yeah. And it has behaviors that are unique to the Japanese market because, uh, like a lot of markets, it got very technological very early. Yes. And then it leapfrogged. It missed a lot of stuff that happened later for other people. So it got very, very technological. So there is a lot of digital and a lot of automation in machines, wherein the mobile automation didn't happen that much. Yeah, it's like automation done brilliantly from the 90s that then sort of um, doesn't really fit with the automation from the 2010 onwards that China's seen. But this is a really interesting way to make that compatible with the tourists. They had, I think Japan was the first place I've ever seen vending machines for loans. Wow. And no. We, yes, they exist. And really? I looked at them. They, I figured, all right, it's probably automatic. We do compliance automation. I said, brilliant. They probably have an engine and it sends the data. No, it's a video conference. There's a person that sits in Osaka in front of a screen. And when somebody activates the vending machine, it opens a video camera. And he's talking to somebody in Osaka. And it's done manually. It's like a branch. But it's done by a vending machine that issues the paper in the end. So the paper comes out the vending machine? Yeah, it prints it. With a can of Coke? No, you get a half loan. But it's very, that's like the personification of that technological leap. Yeah, but I, I, read, I read also about, about so what's interesting, interesting is to me, it's, it's a company who's really specialized in chat and the chat dialogue with the customers. And I don't know much, how much they automated also uh, a chat, roboticized. Um, but I think that's where the future of finance is, to really get a conversation, a digital advice uh, through your app in a conversation or uh, via voice. So a lot of companies are pitching uh, to us. Uh, it's an important uh, topic for our parent company, ABNMRO, uh, chat and voice. But it's also a UX challenge. So really how to get this conversation natural and not like in an infant stage, that's the biggest challenge. So I'm really looking forward to these uh, chat uh, company specialists, how they are going to take up uh, banking. Indeed, we've seen Habito have a really interesting chat interface. Clio have been around for quite some time. Um, Facebook has their M platform, which is arguably the most used in the world, but also I don't know anybody that uses it. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if chat as an interface uh, continues to expand. That was one of those things that really struck me the first time I saw Clio. It seems so utterly counterintuitive. You've got this really nice piece of AI in the background building on information, and then you deliver it through a really slow mechanical mechanism, which younger consumers absolutely love, they're completely at home with, and you're bringing finance into their world rather than trying to make them come to the world of finance. And I think that's what all of these guys who are starting with the platform, starting with the interpersonal stuff, are bringing in 
consumers and saying you can come and engage in exactly the same way about your money and not have to worry about learning a whole new language and your whole new way of working. And that feels really smart when you look at the way in which the traditional industry has just never done that. Which begs the question about big tech, right? Because uh, the the big thing that probably worries the C-suite of most banks is what if big tech does this with the platform they have? If Facebook did it with their 800 million uh, uh, messenger uh, users, their billion plus uh, WhatsApp users, would they do it? And, and, and you said a moment ago that it was hard to monetize chat apps with the exception of Facebook, who monetize chat apps by learning everything about you and retargeting you across Instagram and all of their other platforms. And it's interesting the amount of people that have uninstalled Facebook but use WhatsApp and Instagram every day. The, they, they are a bit of an exception. So I don't know that it's immediate in uh, the, the Western markets that you would see their platform being used. But that doesn't obviate that you wouldn't see either the Asian platforms come in. And it doesn't because you see that now in the Netherlands. Uh, you see that across uh, Scandinavia. Uh, you see those platforms starting to come into the markets. Maybe we'll see it here. I think there's also another big challenge um, to uh, messaging apps in um, the poorer parts of Asia, because especially in places like India and and, uh, not just Asia, but Africa as well, where um, connection speeds are really slow. They're not very well uh, developed. And so loading up advertising and taking up that that valuable bandwidth is just not really an option. Um, Kind of people in those markets kind of sip and dip with their internet. You know, they kind of jump in to make a message and then jump back out again because it's costly. And so advertising in those markets just doesn't work anyway. And so then how else do you monetize? And then with, you know, with with Facebook, I mean, the stories just don't leave the the news at the minute, do they? I mean, they're they're in so much trouble. That's kind of unwinding a little bit, isn't it? And offering banking services that somebody wants and will choose to opt into rather than serving them advertising they're not sure that they want and they begin to start mistrusting your motives feels like a natural way to go. And taking on banking regulation when you've already got global regulators looking at you from data misuse. Um, uh, Before we move on to the next story, which that would have been a great segue to, uh, we spoke to our very own APAC insider, Brandon Chung, to get more of an insight to what all of this means. So Lion, a Japanese chat operator, has announced they will establish a digital banking service with Mizuho Financial Group. Now, this joint venture will first kick off with a mobile-based deposits and loans in 2020. Now, this is an important deal because A, it's a partnership between two of the biggest tech and banking giants in Japan. B, it represents an incumbent bank recognizing and acting on the threat of a tech company entering their space. And C, it shows Lion's ambition to go way deeper into users' financial lives by leveraging on Mizuho's loan screening, settlement, and, and AML knowledge. I think it's worth touching on that line has 75 million monthly active users, um, and they have been offering a range of financial services like household PFM, insurance products, and payments. So because they have an engaged, captive, and revenue-generating customer base from other service lines like games and advertisements, they're able to use that capital to facilitate a mass adoption to their financial products. A good example is that any merchants that sign up for Lines mobile payment services will not be charged a single cent of transaction fee for the next three years. For Japan, I think Japan's low interest environment and a rapid change in customer expectation has really put a strain on traditional banks' business model. So it'll be very interesting to see if this partnership will spark a new wave of greenfield bank builds in Japan. Uh, already, thank you very much to Brandon. Um, whilst before we went to that cutaway, um, we we did mention that um, data breaches are an issue for big tech, but they're not just an issue for big tech. The story comes from Finextra. Card details are at risk in a massive Marriott data breach. So um, millions of payment cards have been exposed 
in an attack on the hotel giant, affecting potentially 500 million guests. The reservation database of the entire Starwood unit has been compromised since 2014. Uh, for 327 million, the compromised information includes a combination of name, mailing address, phone number, email address, passport number, date of birth, gender, um, arrival and departure information, reservation date, and communication preferences. All card numbers are, of course, encrypted, but Marriott cannot confirm if the key components to decrypt them were taken. Uh, for an unspecified number of other guests, the information also includes payment credit card numbers. Oh, uh, wow. So, you know, passport number, home number, phone number, email address, home address. It's a dangerous combination of PII, isn't it? That personally identifiable information pretty much means you got me. Um, just another long, in a long line of big hacks. It's not just happening to big tech, it's happening to everybody. I think it's a matter of time till this is a big bank in the headlines. Mm. I think this is the third highest, uh, the third largest, sorry, data hack. Yeah. Uh, and now you've got to assume you have been your data has been stolen. Mm. So the question is now, what do you do about it? We've moved into a world where it's how do you react to the fact that it's already been stolen, and how do you recover from it quickly? And the other thing here is you know, just kind of like the process of walking into a hotel and giving them your passport is massively insecure. Identity is fundamentally broken if I have to give them this fundamentally important document for them to just give me a room. Like, I'm giving you money. Give me the damn room. I, th I think that the, the approach from now on is just use very low-tech bed and breakfasts that have, like, a yeah. machine, because <laughs> then there's no digital records, so you're good. Uh, but, yeah, you have to give your passports. I think that it's one of those things that actually talks back to what we talked about, like proof of address. It's some habits that came from a long time ago, and we're keeping them in a lot of the consumer and services we actually work with, and they make no sense anymore. There's no sense for you to bring them, give them the ability to have a copy of all of your personal information. You already pay them. In order to pay them, you have to give them that data regardless. But they still require that, and I think that shift is also in a level where the regular, because they're not doing it out of free will. No, it's not their choice to take that data. They're required to take well, that data. Well, they're required to take that data because at the time when they were setting up those processes, it was a sensible way to guarantee you were who you say you were so that they weren't getting scammed. It made sense. It's now a risk. The processes banks use, the processes insurers use, the processes hotels use is a risk in itself. Taking a consumer's data and storing it yourself is a risk to them and to you. And so now we've got to have a fundamentally different paradigm. And we talked about this a lot on episode 246. We we had a whole show around identity. And actually, uh, Vinnie Lingham, the CEO of Civic, talked about uh, that process of going into a hotel and giving his passport was the reason he wanted to start a blockchain-based company that didn't take your data. It just allowed you to sort of validate the fact that your data was still true. And this is the interesting thing. So on Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes now, um, we have an episode coming out next week. Um, so this coming Thursday. So that would be Thursday the 13th uh, for listeners with Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum. And he said something that really stood out to me. He said, the thing that we're going to move away from is blockchain magic. And we're going to start moving into cryptography upgraded. And cryptography was always great for proving a person said a thing and I know it was them. The thing it missed was a person said a thing and I know it was them and it's still true. 
the timeliness of it. Like if I went and got a bank account in 1989, the fact that it might not be still true that that's my address is hard to prove. But actually, in a, in the world of crypto upgraded, I can tell it's still true because it hasn't been changed by anyone anywhere in the economy. And that would be hugely beneficial. And I really do think we've got to start getting away from hype and start getting into serious conversations around that. I'll get off my soapbox now. Uh, no, no, actually, from that soapbox, I think that what you're talking about, and if we're abandoning the, let's say, the breach for itself, is that's the shift. The shift is when we're doing, when we're dealing with compliance, just say not all data is created equal. Think about the half-life of what you're dealing with. But some data is more equal than others? Uh, it's worth more. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is a point where you're saying some information, your your date of birth doesn't change. So it doesn't matter if I have it, if I got it now, or I got it 30 years ago, it's the same piece, it has the same validity. Uh, your, your national ID number doesn't change. Your name might change, so it has a sensitivity to it. But your address changes all the time. So why do I give the same weight to your name and date of birth that I give to your address. I shouldn't give them the same way. Well, and also your location changes, but your location gives you context. So where you are right now is a lot more important than where you were. Where you are right now, especially tied up to where a transaction just happened, it helps me prevent fraud. But do I have to know that's you, or do I have to know that that's the same persistent behavior of that same persistent actor in the network? And I think there's something about, like, does it, do I always have to, like, there was this assumption that I had to know everything about you to prevent risk, but I think actually now that creates risk. Yeah, I, I, I thought of open banking, which you already have here in the UK now, and PSD2. Well, kind of. Kind of, <laughs> okay, okay. So some are exaggerating this, but uh, okay. But uh, PSD2 is, uh, is, is coming uh, to the rest of Europe. And then uh, this question is, of course, uh, uh, people sharing financial data, who's going to store it, what is inside this uh, financial uh, data uh, i think this this uh, so these breaches they uh, they have uh, have now really put put the big question on the table sons uh, of breaches and and sons of breaches and now you're getting into financial data as well so that's most personal to uh, to consumers Experian just got a lot more interesting for hackers yeah they have rental data now wow <laughs> yeah if they have an equifax moment then yeah then so it, this and that's the thing is you need more what we talked about is we we're talking about two sides of the same problem you need more data so you can give better service the more data you have the more the, higher the risk you have oh, and this is where surely decentralization starts to make sense yeah because actually the i continue to be me I continue to operate across a whole bunch of services. I could theoretically tie together all of those decentralized bits of information, but centralizing it, yes, it's efficient, but it also is risky. There's a trade-off to be had there. And you think conceptually from a consumer point of view that that makes complete sense. All the conversation we've just had, anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about is it a, is a loss. They just know the whole thing's getting scarier. The whole thing's getting... A, 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 so I can either withdraw... Or I could just carry on going and there's another Marriott leak. And, uh, but if you best, start yeah. talking to somebody about the idea that you, know, you could have a single identity held in a single place, conceptually that, get e that gets easier. You know, that takes you back to the idea of, oh, yeah, so I had an identity card. I had, a, I had a passport 30, 40 years ago. So the idea of trying to bring it all together in one place, I think, is something you can talk to consumers about in a way that you can't talk to them about all the sorts of issues that we've just been talking about. And I think from a consumer perspective as well, there's no why would a consumer think that it's acceptable to keep those details after the transaction? You know, they're not thinking they're keeping it. 
as far as they're considered, when you checked into the hotel and you did the little scan, that's that's done. It's yeah. over. That information doesn't exist anymore as far as the yeah. consumer is concerned. Us unlucky few to think about the impact of that is going like, oh, shit, they have my passport now. And I have my passport and they have other information I have and they're saving it on some sort of a server in the back of a Marriott. And who's guarding that computer? There's no regulator that's coming to them saying, where do yeah, you keep if that you, data? If you force the conversation on open banking, which we do over and over again with consumers to try and get to some, you quite quickly get to, and so they've taken this data and they do what with it? And, and that's about longevity, will, it's about processes, about a whole bunch of stuff. We will get to the point where passport numbers, identity cards become useless because they've been hacked so many times and we'll need a new paradigm for identity. So I think that Telegram, did. they're trying right now, they tried at least, they have an API for doing passports between Telegram users. Wow. Actually uploading all of your identity data into Telegram because it's probably more secure than any other method of uploading your identity information. And you can pack it. You can share specific aspects of your identity via Telegram with other users. And if that's scary, i got some good news for you. <laughs> um, story comes from Fenextra. Uh, London has installed a network of contactless donation points to help the homeless. Uh, so you can now make contactless card donations to homelessness charities through a network of terminals across the city. These tap donation points have so far been installed in 35 locations with more than 90 to appear across winter. Um, each tap uh, deducts £3, which will be split between the 22 charities uh, comprising the London Homelessness Charities Group. Sadiq Khan launched a scheme at City Hall um, and other uh, various point donation points uh, in busy areas of London. Uh, last year, Londoners had helped nearly raise nearly £200,000 over the winter, said London Mayor Sadiq Khan. I like this. I like this a lot. It was just last uh, week, I think my fiance Haley was saying... Um, she was really concerned. Like, she doesn't carry cash anymore. She wants to donate around Christmas in winter to uh, homelessness. She typically did so with cash, but hasn't carried cash in, in you know a couple of years. There was a level of guilt that was starting to build. And yes, she's got the automated bank account set up so that she's paying into some charities. But this thing of being able to do it in the moment was quite a nice way to contribute that had disappeared. I like this solution also very much. So in the Netherlands, it's like a nearly a cashless society. And then you have these donations being cash. People uh, visit door to door. Um, there's no cash in the house. Um, so now they're selling subscriptions. But uh, people don't like subscriptions because they want this instant gratification. And uh, they can do it uh, time after time. Um, so these in innovations, they're really needed. And also in the Netherlands, you see many initiatives uh, and this is, this is the second, donations. second one in about a fortnight because there was a, a big issue seller piece. They're doing a trial with iZettle for yes, big issue yes. sellers too. So the same sort of thing. And, and I love this idea. I love the fact that, you know, a few years ago we were all scared about, you know, contactless being taken unintentionally and wrapping cards in foil and stuff. And now we're walking past the windows of charity shops and loving that we can tap and give. And it's great. that I remember saw the first one of these a few weeks, a few months ago and thought it was a great idea. Temporary tangent. Uh, going back to the first story with like people are really scared of Monzo right now. There's always that moment when a new technology starts to cross over and the old guy goes, ah! um, you know, the, the thieves will be after me money. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> old people are, well, not old people, but the old guard, sorry, uh, are pirates clearly. Um, uh, but the, this is, this is the similar moment when convenience can be really, really good if it's done right. And the thing with contactless is for the most part, there's sensible limits in place. There's a maximum of 30 pounds. Like, there's there's some sense here that I think is really really good. Yeah, I, I I really like the idea behind the story, but for me there's something a little bit lost in that the connection 
um, feels a little bit lost because when you're, well, when it's, it's like, I guess, personal thing, when you're giving people cash on the street, um, especially around Christmas time, especially when it's cold, you know, you have that connection with that person. Um, whereas tap in your contactless card, we know that that frictionless pay disconnects us from money anyway. Um, but tapping against a terminal that's going to go to a charity that's going to be redistributed out feels like, I don't know, it, personally it doesn't quite work for me, even though the idea behind it I think is brilliant um, because it is addressing that problem that people aren't carrying cash anymore. I mean, I'd love to see that that that, that kind of contactless terminal with homeless people. So, in, you know, there's some amazing homeless people out, out there um, it not so. I think it was last last wins. I had one person um, kind of came up to me and said, "Hey man, I'm trying to get a, um, a plane ticket to Jamaica. Would you mind giving me a fiver?" I was like, "Yes, mm. <laughs> you've got real character and personality, and like I really want to give you some money, but I don't have any on me because I've got contacts cards. If I could just tap him a fiver, I'd be like yes, that'd be brilliant." Mm. I I agree completely with you that the relationship with money being digital is uh, is kind of lost. Uh, and it's a, it's a it's a problem most of the time. So my my son he he uses my uh, my public transport card and he think thinks it's for free. But <laughs> yeah. if he would use it to donate to people, well, that's the upside. Yeah, it goes both right? ways, doesn't it? And yeah. by the way, Ryan, I'm going to Jamaica. So <laughs> <like> <laughs> <laughs> sign up. It's not donation for people in a way. It's you're donating to a cause, which is good. But it's one of the parts of the let's say. The homeless exchanges, the experiences you're giving to a person, that person wants to go to Jamaica, in a way. And what in other cultures, and actually we talked about WeChat and WePay, WePay, if you look, and it's actually, I recommend it because it's an interesting thing to see. If you look homeless, WePay, they use cardboard boxes with QR codes on them. And if you go through China, they'll sit with QR codes on cardboard, which means two things. First, there's an interesting way to donate in China. Two is they're banked. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting sign point because it's a way to move them out of that poverty cycle. It is, absolutely. And it, it, it can it, be stolen. You can take their money away from them. And it puts them into the world of e-commerce. It puts them into the world of services. It's completely different. And it's a much more uh, gentle entry to the world of banking than uh, go prove your address. Coming back to, to the other story from earlier. Um, so uh, moving from cash, I think there's a reason why a lot of us aren't carrying cash. And it might not be what you thought it was. Um, story comes from Thrillist. Um <laughs> <laughs> a rat broke into an ATM. I got the rat in me ATM. Um, and ate nearly $20,000 worth of cash. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> and you're going flights to Jamaica. Like. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. So uh, a rat in India squeezed its way into an ATM machine and consumed and destroyed nearly $17,000 worth of rupees and promptly died. Uh, when technicians attended the ATM, they found and look, what looked like the contents of a paper shredder with the rat already dead and buried within the minced up money. No foul play is expected. The rat pack may have been involved, though. <laughs> 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 any, any, no? You don't chew money, right? It's going to be bad for you. He chewed through a lot of it, though. Like, after, like, the first few. Why don't you just think, nah, this is not good. All things in moderation, right? It's like, that rat must have been hungry to yeah. chew that much money. Like, That's a lot. Like, I know rats can eat. A I don't think he eat. said he ate it. He chewed it. Uh, maybe he just had really itchy teeth. Yeah, just like going to town and like really angry about, you know... Uh, the economy or the state of the roof, you're just like, oh, I don't care about this anymore. I'm ripping through this. Did anybody remember Scrooge McDuck? I. 
the cartoon with the like really rich duck that used to dive into money and not die somehow from diving into uh, diving coins. into coins. Yes, which, which is incredible. If you've not seen that, uh, then Google it and look it up on YouTube. It's quite freaky. Family Guy actually did send up that sketch where um, I think Peter Griffin tried to dive into money and then broke his legs and arms in the process. And they remade <laughs> DuckTales. Yeah. So DuckTales is out again, actually. Wow, they've remade DuckTales. There is brand new information. Um, I guess ATM security is going downhills. I love this and finally story because it sort of tells you that there are still some risks with cash. and uh, <laughs> Money can't buy happiness, right? Money cannot buy happiness, but it can certainly um, maybe cure an itch in your teeth, but it might kill you. So, you know, a little column A, a little Very column B. extreme pesticide method of just like spreading <laughs> around money in the They eat it, it kills them, so... A very expensive pesticide method as well. Alrighty, on that crazy note, that wraps up another week's show. Thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Menno? On Twitter, at MennoVL. So I skipped the Van Leeuwen, MennoVL. Or on Instagram, Fintech Banker. Ooh. Or, yeah, that's Fintech a good Banker. Way. That's it. I, I, I claimed it a long time ago. I'm Fintech jealous banker. of that handle. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah, you, can, you can buy it for a good offer. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't go like trying to sell Twitter handles. <laughs> oh, no, I will, I will keep it. Or oh. on LinkedIn, of course, Men of Day One. Oh, brilliant. Happy Thank you connect. so much. You can absolutely sell Twitter handles. I really don't mind. How about you, Guy? Uh, well, at Twitter, at Guy underscore Stiebel, that's D-I-E-B-L, and at LinkedIn, Guy Stiebel. Brilliant. Paul? And you can find me on LinkedIn and lots and lots of lovely consumer data at the Ipsos Mori website. Beautiful. And Ryan? Uh, Twitter, at Ryan Garner. And as for me, you can find me at bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019. (laughs) (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) What was that? Bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019? Oh, I didn't catch it again. Bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2019. Bit.ly... L-Y. L-Y, okay. Oh, my God. You were so close. Well, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> Bet.ly forward slash 11FS2019. Like, if we don't win this thing. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, listeners. You can actually find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. And you can troll me for being a troll. Um, and also, you can let us know what you thought of our stories at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11FS.com. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And goodbye for now. 